Well, welcome back to Sheep Stuff. You should know this is Ryan Mahoney broadcasting to you from Amy Tower One, the new office digs, and joined here by uh, Dan Macon in the satellite uh, satellite studios in Auburn, California today. Is that right? Cooperative Extension, uh, you know. The asylum. The asylum. The it asylum. is the asylum. It is the asylum, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. a great story. Right. I will never forget that story. <laughs> I'm tell my kids. I'm going to tell my kids about the about the uh, sheep or the uh, sheep, the uh, animals running through the walls at Foster's, and I'm going to tell them about the asylum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with where the Placer County Extension Office is, at one time it was a mental institution serving the county of Placer. And uh, some would say that um, that not much has changed. Gave the inmates badges and keys. That's right. That's yep. exactly right. Exactly <laughs> right. How was Thanksgiving, man? It's been a while. How I you? know. It's been a long time. It's been, what, three, four weeks almost? I think so, yeah. Yeah, maybe even a little longer. But Yeah. But, man, things have been busy, man. How about, I know you've been busy, but we've been busy. Are you done lambing? Uh, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I'm done. I'm will be done lambing on the 15th of December, but I may just, because we got nothing to do on the 16th, I might just buy some more sheep that we're going to lamb out right after. Oh, yeah. you're, so, in, you're in lambing mode, so you might as well. I know. I got a, might yeah, I well. had a little reprieve. I got some lambs marked. Now I'm ready to get back into the barn. But, <laughs> but no, yeah, we're, we're, we're closing in, but, um, but man, great, great lamb crop. We got 3,600 lambs plus on the ground. Outstanding. And um, I got, what, 27 plus 300 and something. So over 3,000 marked. And uh, calves are we're getting through branding calves now. We got three different bunches branded, so we're at 100 and 200. We're on 200 calves branded, so we're moving along. Moving along. What do you do? Do you like sleep at all, or do you just mark mark lambs, mark calves, go back to the lambing barn? Well, I don't sleep very much these days because uh, when I do, I have dreams because I'm just worried about everything all the time. <laughs> and uh, this morning, <laughs> I told you before we went online, I woke up at three o'clock this morning. This morning, I woke up at three in the morning from a nightmare that I just like bought all sorts of everything. And I just like was completely broke, lost everything. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up in this panic, like, oh my gosh. So I did what any sane person did. I got up, made some coffee, went to the office. <laughs> got, got right to work. Yeah. Oh, man. Yep. Um, I know how no. that feels. I know how, how, feels. how was Thanksgiving? How do you, how, I, I'm not, I'm not even on Instagram right now. So I don't even know what you're doing. <laughs> we, we, Thanksgiving was great. We went to, uh, to New Mexico and stayed with Laura, went to White Sands National Park, which was amazing. And uh, had- is that, in the, is that in the north there? It's in uh, in Southern New Mexico. Um, oh, cool. Just, uh, you know, 40 miles north of El Paso is all. Oh, wow. So, yeah, it was great. It what was, was it like there? Is it there moisture? Is it dry? Is it, you know- How is, the, how is it? This is a classic sheep rancher question. <laughs> what's how was the, the sheep feed? Yeah, how was the feed? <laughs> <laughs> And I know you looked. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that's that's what that's why we go on vacation to see other people's feed, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, I, you know, it's interesting that part of the desert gets monsoon 
mm -hmm. rains. And so they got a lot of rain July and August. And uh, so they had a lot of dry feed, um, a lot of dry feed. They had a, a, just an amazing monsoon year. We got a little rain while we were down there, which was nice. Um, so there's sheep feed. That's awesome. I know I was down in San Angelo there end of the summer and it was, it was incredible feed down there. More grass than I've ever seen in that country. I don't go there very often, but it was, yeah. That, that great. was nice to see grass. It was, yeah. and it's, God, it's nice to see grass around here too, isn't it? Oh man. I, you know, um, I, I, I hesitate to say anything cause I know our, our, our friends and peers and colleagues down South are struggling yeah. heartily right now. And I, here montana and idaho might be going drought too so it's yeah it's uh you definitely need to appreciate while it's here but we have we had that incredible rain and then we've had absolutely perfect weather and um we went from grass tetany to concerns to bloat concerns in about a wow. five-day period wow. because the amount of fillery and burr clover that we have growing in our fields right now on our range land it's just absolutely it's one of the most beautiful feed years I've ever seen. I had my grandpa out the other day. I toured him around. He's 92 now. What do you and say? What do you think? He, he was just, he couldn't stop talking and he kept saying this is, this is, <laughs> this is April feed. This is April feed. And you're sitting here in December, Ryan, you, you, do you understand how good this is? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Like, yes. Yes. I was here last year, grandpa. I appreciate this a lot. <laughs> See that cow? I'm not feeding it very much hay. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, man, it's a, it's it's fascinating though. But with that incredible blessing and resource, it's it's really nice to be able to see the animals. Like, and every animal's different. The cows that stayed on the range that we fed hay for the last nine months or whatever it's been, to see them starting to put condition back on and coming back into their own. Yeah. I mean, the old cows look really old, but the, 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 they're coming back. And, um, and then the ones that we had on our irrigated pasture, we have no more cows on our irrigated pasture. They're all down in the oh, hills great. and they're just in great body condition. And the, the sheep feed, I mentioned fillery and burkle over the sheep feeds, just, man, it it's, you need to come down and look because it's, I do. It's, it's truly something special. I'll probably, I probably won't see a year like this again. I mean, it's just, unbelievable of course it could all go dry and never rain again and we'll just be back but still it's really we're, nice right now we're supposed to get um a pretty good shot of rain next week up here are you guys looking yeah we're scheduled for an day? inch but <clears throat> yeah we'll see it actually rained this morning a little bit kind of a mist but rain yeah we've had some heavy fog too heavy dew. yeah now this was this was we've had fog all the time we've had one of the best mushroom years we've ever had we Somebody get these kind of told me that meadow mushrooms that grow everywhere. I mean, it was, yeah. my wife sent me out though the other day and I think it's, I think it just got dry enough on the topsoil where we stopped getting them, but, um, uh, she's a little disappointed that I didn't bring any home, but I mean, I, we had fresh mushrooms out of the field four or five times already the last three weeks. That's wild. It's amazing. That's wild. literally wild. Good pun. <laughs> I talked, I ran into a, a rancher friend at the cattleman's convention up in Reno last week from, mm -hmm. Uh, just south of here in the foothills. He said the mushrooms were like he'd never seen them before. Yeah. So that's cool. Yeah, it's fun. I'd, I'd never picked mushrooms before, but this year I went out there and there were so many of them. I called um, uh, called a guy, uh, one of my buddies, Chris Carlson at the RCD, 
And uh, I was kind of like picking around wondering who could I call? And then I was like, that guy's got to know. So I called Chris and, and he comes out, comes out and he says, Oh yeah, you know, I'll come down. You know, I do it a little bit. I kind of know, know a little bit about it. And then, um, then he comes out and he's got the, he's got the right bag. He's got, he brought two different tools with like a little brush on one end and the night, like <laughs> I mean, it was, he, he, and it's like one of his hobbies and passions is picking mushrooms. And so <laughs> I traded him free range to pick as many mushrooms as you want any time of year for te- a lesson or two. So awesome. he, he taught me and I fed me and my wife and we survived the night. And <laughs> so we're I've never good. been brave enough to try it. That's so cool. Yeah, that was so fun. Cool. Awesome. I made a, I made my second day. I made a, I made a mushroom, a Hungarian mushroom soup. That was just Ooh. so good. It was just, it was rich and it had, it was like sour cream and all that, but then it also had a lot of paprika in it and oh, oh man. man, it was dynamite. While we're talking food, I do have to uh, acknowledge that the New Zealand Weber barbecue website has the most incredible barbecue lamb recipes I've ever seen on it. Really? Yes. Check it out. Go look for, for Weber, New Zealand. We did a, a rack of lamb on the Weber for Thanksgiving. You sent me pictures. Oh my God. It was, it was outrageous. It and looked, done, it's just amazing. It looked cooked perfectly too. I mean, just combination, just everything right on that one. That was yep. It was it, that would have made my calendar if it was <laughs> taken by my phone. But, well, I'll but, send you the picture. I'll send you yeah, the picture. Yeah. But no, that yeah, that looked amazing. So yeah. Weber, Weber New Zealand website, huh? Yep. Yep. Awesome. He's got it figured out. Well, uh, to simplify things, I made lamb shanks the other night, and um, I've discovered my I really like getting really elaborate with my spices and all of these things. And I had an idea a couple months ago and I tried it and my wife loved it and my kids loved it. And so then, um, I said I was going to make shanks and they started begging me to do this way again. And so I've discovered that the new best way to make, um, lamb shanks is you get your crock pot or Dutch oven and you prepare your lamb shanks. Like you normally do. If you want to sear them a little bit, you can, but then you put them in and then you go to the grocery store and you buy one of those super cheap, like $3, giant cans of enchilada sauce, the green enchilada sauce, oh, and just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pour, just do enchilada sauce and lamb shanks and cook them. <laughs> so, <laughs> it, it is incredible. It is so good. We but, do, we do boneless shoulders that way. And then yeah. tacos out of it. Oh yeah. my God, it's good. I yes. should do a square cut shoulder like that. That'd be good. Yeah, That's, that's outrageously good. And simple. that'd be a good camping food too. Yeah. We, we've camping done it. And, yeah. We've done that camping. Yeah. That'd be great. Just do it in the campfire. Absolutely. Heck yeah. Well, cool. Well, man, we filled the banter at plus some today. So <laughs> it's I, because we haven't talked for three weeks. Right I know now. it's good. I'm going to be sad when I hang up, when the timer kicks in and I got to go pick <laughs> up my kids and, and, uh, I gotta, gotta go. But, um, today I wanted to talk a little bit to you about, um, genetics and, and kind of, you're not a geneticist. Nope. And I'm not a geneticist. And so to anybody who knows anything about genetics, um, <laughs> go ahead and just skip the rest of this episode. Um, you can just turn the volume down to zero. So that way it registers as a full play, but just, you know, don't, you don't have to listen because we're going to probably step into some territory that we know nothing about, but, um, 
what what inspired this topic was my brother got a dog and he told me I got this super cute dog Ryan and and um and it's a it's a crossbreed between a 10 pound dog and an 80 pound dog and so my dog's going to be 40 pounds and I thought to myself I was like you know I don't know a lot about genetics but I'm pretty sure that's not how it works <laughs> and so um so anyway, so that, that story turned into some thoughts. And so at, I don't know, two, three in the morning, one day, it just kind of rolled into this question of, um, we have this in the markets. We, we've always had two distinct lamb trades in the U S we've always had the ethnic trade, which is a lighter carcass, a lot of dorpers, hair, sheep breeds, different things like that. And then we'd have our, um, commercial, which is a heavier kind of Suffolk, Rambouillet, Columbia, you know, whatever cross of those bigger type breeds. But over the last two years, those markets and the values in those markets have changed to where you have, you have uh, commercial producers wanting to sell into the ethnic trade because the market's good there. And then you also have ethnic trade producers wanting to sell the commercial trade. And I've heard a lot of different theories and questions. And, and I, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of talk about like how, when you're crossbreeding to add size or take size away, how do you go about doing it? You know, how do, do you, you know, you have your defined breeds that you have, but when you want to really start pushing the envelope, how would you, how would you go about doing it? So probably a good spot to start for first question to you is you got some dorpers and it's a good set of dorpers and you want to grow them to where that running age you is 10, 20 pounds heavier. How would you start thinking about wanting to tackle that problem? First, I've got to erase the middle image of the 10 pound dog and the 80 pound dog. <laughs> it took me a while, but then yeah. I was like, oh, they know, they know how to do this in vitro <laughs> fertilization stuff. So. Well, the, so the, the sheep question is a good one. You know, I think um, one of our challenges as we've talked before in the sheep industry industry is that we don't have kind of extensive EPDs or EBVs or however we want to term, term those predictions that I think have been so effective in the cattle industry. Um, but that said, I, th I think, you know, to some extent, I guess you could start phenotypically looking for rams that, that add a little frame and, and size and, and muscle volume. Um, if you are staying with a straight dorper, you, and I guess that's the other question. Is there some value in, in kind of creating a terminal cross you, um, and adding some size with some of the more conventional breeds in those, those crossbreeding systems. I know when we started with Dorpers, um, we bought some crossbred ewes from a guy <clears throat> up by Oroville. And um, we found that they had to be at least five eighths Dorper to shed their wool, which is kind of why we had started with them. So I think there'd be some trade-offs in, in using a more conventional breed to, to get some size to them. What, how would you go about it, Ryan? Um, I don't know. That's why I asked the question. Um, <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Uh, no, I, yeah, it's, it, it's interesting when you start talking about 
going from a hair breed to a wool breed. And I do know, um, I knew to one, one friend of ours, mutual friend that, that, um, runs hair breeds that has mm-hmm. to shear his sheep anyway, because mm-hmm. the influence of the hair breed. And so he's, I, I, I think some of those guys may underestimate a true shearing cost on a full wooled sheep versus a, just peeling the back off of a, yeah. off of a wool dorper. But, yeah. um, but at the end of the day, there, there's this crossover of how do I push the size of my sheep, um, and not lose what I want to have. And, right. um, I think right. there's a lot of breed loyalty in our industry, which is hundred percent necessary for, especially for seed stock and um, heritage breeds. I mean, I, please anybody who has a passion for a heritage breed, keep those and keep those lines going because that's just, you, you really, you never know what kind of random breed the industry is going to need a hundred, 200, 300 years from now. So yeah, yeah keep absolutely. that going. Absolutely. But for, um, for the commercial guy, if you're just looking at how do I monetize my outfit the best, um, if you're going to want to play in, in both markets and be able to sell in both the ethnic and the commercial market, you really, you really have to move outside of that hair breed and get some wool influence in there to get the frame on the sheep. So I, I think, I think you're pushed into crossbreeding at that point. I don't think the Dorper or some of these hair breeds have enough frame on the top end frame to get big enough. Cause you need a 130, 40 pound finished carcass to be able to sell into that. And I think they kind of tap out at, at 120, 110. You know, it's interesting. Our, our use are on the smaller side, kind of intentionally with the resource that we've mm-hmm. got to feed them with. And, and, uh, this year I fed some lambs. I, I picked out 10 lambs and, and, um, put them on feed. Oh, I think we started on feed like the end of September and, um, harvested the first five right before Thanksgiving and they turned out great. They, you know, they were in the 125 pound live range based on their, their carcass weights, um, which is bigger than we have typically finished lambs. I didn't get yield grades back on them, but I suspect they were threes. Um, so they were a little, had a little more bark on them than what we would typically have. But I think part of maybe part of the, the consideration I would think about is maybe that's not what superiors looking for necessarily, but there's a market for those kind of lambs too. That's, that's maybe not an ethnic market, not the conventional market, but I think there's a niche for kind of that size carcass. If you're doing some direct marketing too, that, that would be worth developing as well. And I know that's not where you were going with the question, but I, I do think there's a marketing aspect to this as well that we need to grapple with as an industry. So what, how important got on that vein? Cause at the, at the root of my question is a person looking at the commercial price going through the roof right. and wanting a piece of that. Right. Um, is that a, is that a poor mentality as a business operator to chase the market rather than stay disciplined in what you're doing? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, and I think, I think maybe the nuance to that is to sit down and run the numbers on it. 
what's it going to take, how long is it going to take you and what additional costs are you going to incur to chase that, that segment of the market, whatever it is. And you could look at it the other way too. You could have looked at it as the ethnic market wants 30 pound carcasses. What am I giving up to sell a lamb at that size to, to yeah. get into that market? I, one of the, one of the most fascinating things I, I heard down at that Texas sheep and goat expo that I was able to go to was they had um, three different ethnic buyers buying mm -hmm. ethnic lambs and we blop them all into a big thing. And they started going through, they, they took these different pen lots and they were running them through and they started describing, well, these are going to hit that special market and these ones here, yeah. they're going to hit this special market. And so there's a market for the 30 pound lamb. There's a market for the 125 pound lamb. There's a market for the 110 pound lamb. So really it's about understanding where you're at, what markets are available to you. And then I guess my going back to my original question about breeding size onto a dwarf or a smaller frame type animal is the idea of can't, I mean, really it's a question of, can you get a, can you raise an animal that fits both? Can you raise an animal that will fit that commercial market that will finish at a heavier weight if you push it, but then also you have that flexibility to sell it at 80, 90, hundred pounds. If the market is good at the time, they're at that weight. Yeah. Right. Right. Because the problem on the commercial, I mean, commercial, if you're going to weigh 150 pounds, when you go to town, you, at one point you were at 90, but right. those commercial lambs, they tend to not be fat enough and be a little leaner than some of these, you know, like a dorper is, is just gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous at 90 pounds. Yep. Whereas you get my white face ramble a across at 90 pounds and you know, it's, it's only stew meat salts good for. <laughs> right. 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 That's, do you think some of that can be handled through management or are those bigger frame lambs always going to be not quite done until they reach their finish, their finish scale? <laughs> Well, I think it depends on it. There's a lot of genetic disposition in that question or answering yeah. that question yeah. and, and a lot of variation within the breeds. I mean, you, you can take a bunch of Merinos or a bunch of Rambolets and, and, um, I mean, people who have arguably straight Rambolets and line them up and some are going to be 180 pounds. Right. when they're, and some are going to be 130 pounds. Um, right. you really see that when you, when you take the same genetic type sheep and you run them in Wyoming versus Montana right. versus Idaho versus California, mm -hmm. the, the finishing weight of those animals is different in those right. different areas because of the resources they're adapted to. Right. So, I mean, there, there is definitely a range to work with within a breed. Um, and, and yeah, yeah, I don't know. It's just about, it's kind of about trying to give yourself the most options, but not ruining your entire program. Yeah. Chase, chasing, a, chasing a high market. I always get nervous chasing markets because everybody wants to chase a good market. And by the time you figure it out, everybody else probably has to, and it crashes. <laughs> That's what we're good at doing. But I, I, I do think there's an element of truth to that, Ryan. I think um, kind of knowing what the strengths of your sheep and your feed and your system are and, and focusing on the market that is most profitable for that combination of things 
is important. And it's once you, I, I, we used to see this in the, in the direct market business a lot, you know, there's this push, particularly in grass feeding beef, but, but to some extent in sheep too, you got people that want the product and there's this tendency Oh, that steer's not quite done, but I got people beating down the door for steaks. I better go get it harvested. Or I got people beating down the door for leg of lamb for Christmas. I better go get them done. And you start chasing those markets at the expense of the quality of your product. That market doesn't hang around very long. And I think that's a real, that's kind of a microcosm of the question you're asking. I think in chasing markets, <clears throat> one of the benefits of sheep maybe is that the genetic turnovers um, quicker than it is in cattle. So you can make those differences more quickly, <clears throat> but gosh, to invest in changing your whole genetic program, because the fat market's really good in 2021 um, seems like kind of a, a risky proposition to me. Yeah. I, I, I agree uh, with that. The only, the main reason why I think, I think I'm, I don't know if you'd call it taking, taking it serious and bringing it up is because, um, historically the ethnic market has not been able to handle the volume of lamb when the commercials crashed, but when that crashed two, three years ago, or when COVID happened in the bankruptcy, um, the, the ethnic market really was able to take a lot of the product and will still want more that price that price for that product for that lighter carcass stayed strong. Yeah. And ultimately the snapback from that kind of create was one of the factors creating the current supply shortage that we're in. Right. And that's so, a good point. And so there's, to me, there is some long-term fundamentals that are pointing to the fact that you do have some more balance in those two markets competing directly with each other for the total number of sheep in the U S mm -hmm. and so, you know, me as a producer and do, you know, am, is that, is it actually a beneficial risk management? You know, you, you can do it to chase price or you can do it to balance risk. And right. if you're pursuing this to try to create a lamb that could go either market any given day of the year, that would be the perfect world situation, you know, where I can, I can either sell this 90 pound lamb to the ethnic guy. He's going to process it and it's going to be a good product for him. He's going to, it fits what he wants to do, or I can sell it to, uh, you know, a feed yard or a backgrounder and that lamb's still going to continue to grow at a reasonable conversion ratio and do fairly well. It's not going to, you know, when you hit that, when you put too much finish on and you have too fat of a lamb when you sell it as a feeder they don't feed as well and so right. that's the risk you run is you can always put more pounds on but if they're converting if if they've already kind of built their frame out and you're just putting on pounds of meat and fat it's a lot less efficient than if they're actually growing still and so and and i do i love i mean the whole western range sheep is heterosis it's that it's that it's that Rambouillet maternal cross with that Suffolk creating that hybrid vigor in that lamb that's growing fast. And so when you're, you know, anyway, that's, so let, let <clears throat> there's a lot the, of question there. Yeah. Let me ask the question a different way then. Um, and I, I think 
you're right that it can be a, if we can figure out how to do it, it can be a really effective risk management tool. I think when it's, when it's pursued with that in mind, it's a different set of questions than, gosh, the fat market's raking money in hand over fist right now. <clears throat> how do I get it, get to take advantage of that? So is it easier to take a small frame sheep like mine and breed up to be able to do that, to be able to have that, that um, ethnic market lamb at 80, 90 pounds and still be able to finish a 140 pound lamb effectively? Or is it easier to take sheep like yours and figure out a way to market a high quality product at that lighter weight? Yeah. I mean that, yeah, absolutely. That's the million dollar question. And then the other question is, how, how do you do it? Do you, right. do, do I buy a Dorper Ram and throw it on my <laughs> Rambolet use? Right. And then right. what do those lambs look at? And then what do you select for replacements out of that right. progeny? Right. And, right. You know, and that gets to heritability of traits and right. a whole lot of stuff where <laughs> the, the, the brilliant genetic minds in the world just <laughs> turned us off. But, um, <laughs> They are, they did that a couple of yeah, good. Ago. I gave them the warning. So yeah. it's, it's full. Yeah, we're, we're good. We're good. <laughs> but I think, I think this is a real question that a lot of people are thinking about right now. Um, because, because the, these, um, I mean, there's just a lot of value in sheep in general and, right. um, to give yourself the most marketing options is, is good. And the one thing that's hundred percent for sure that this ethnic market is not going anywhere. It, it is strong no. and it's diverse and it's, it's, um, in a lot of different areas and, and it's beginning to, to, uh, sophisticate. And I think it's a little, maybe a little more insulated from some of the risk that we've been dealing with in these last three or four years. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not as dependent it's not as dependent on a certain amount as much as it is there. There, It's just, there's so many different, mm -hmm. there's so many different people selling it. You know, there's, <laughs> we complain about no packing houses, but in the ethnic trade, you have one on every corner. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And, right. 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 So uh, the other, th you know, you mentioned this too, and I think it would be an interesting topic for a future episode with, with some folks that work in those, in that, part of the business, you know, is a good lamb, a good lamb, a good lamb, regardless of where it's marketed. So I, you know, our lambs go off the U bulk of them go into the ethnic trade, right. At weaning. Mm -hmm. um, and they're probably, they haven't experienced that little trough that everything goes through when you wean, when they're trying to figure out where mom went and, and all of yeah. that, you know, those are good lambs at that particular point, partly because of the management and partly because of the, the genetic makeup. Is there something in common about what makes a good lamb at 70 pounds versus what makes a good lamb at 140? Yeah. I mean, that, that's to me, that's the biggest, that's the biggest strength and the biggest difficulty in that ethnic, in the ethnic market, right? Because the ethnic market is yes to all. Right. Because everyone has a different market. I mean, I, right. I just, that's a good point. I can't emphasize how much, like how blown away I was. And, and, um, anybody who lives it is just going to be laughing at me, but really, it, it really amazed me and opened my eyes. Cause 
I've, I've lived in this commercial world and in the product you're working for uniform product, you're looking right. for uniform loads. Um, I, my favorite quote from Richard Hamilton is that, that 50,000 pounds of consistency is what he's trying to get. And, and that's, that's what our industry wants. That's a commercial industry. We want to be consistent all the way through with all of this stuff, but this, the, the, the brilliance of that ethnic trade is I'm going to buy 30 different sheep all at different stages and different types and different things. And I'm going to sell them one by one to 30 different people Find a who, home for each who all yeah. want exactly what I got. Yeah. And, and that's the, and it's, it's in the, you know, it's the diverse cultures we have. It's the diverse demands. And I mean, it's, it's really pretty amazing. I mean, he was going through, even in the preparation of the product in these different areas, like it, it was really amazing. Well, and I, I think that is that is really amazing. I I th- I would go back to maybe the there's a place for every kind of lamb, but a lamb that's not well cared for isn't yeah. going to be a long term market. You won't make money not taking animals. care of your animals. That's yeah. that's gonna that's gonna <laughs> that's and, gonna and, trump all this stuff. If you're just trying to sell a sheep and not take care of it, you're just gonna end up with a bunch yeah. of no money. If you're selling light lambs because you can't do because just because they're not gaining their poor doers yeah they'll find a home but you may not find a buyer next year well and if if your lambs are 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 super light because they're thin and they're hurting the ewes are probably hurting and so the longevity is going to be hurt and yeah i mean we've talked about that a bunch of times but the economics the economic well-being of every ranch is directly tied to the health yep and you got to take care of them so yeah absolutely yeah. I have you ever it, seen a have you ever seen a Dorper cross with a Rambouillet or a Merino? Um no, I've seen a Dorper crossed with um back on Dorsets. Dorsets are common. Yeah, yeah. but I've not seen a, a fine wool. Have you? No, I just I'm curious what it would look like. <laughs> Sounds like an experiment's gonna happen at nah, any maybe I'll sell you some <laughs> sheep you can try it on, man. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. We've had some court other course wool. Um we've had actually some blue face Lester torpor crosses. How many how many uh generations or breedings do you think it would take for you to put twenty pounds on the running age of your you? I think probably that's a good question. I think um Assuming you get the breeding right. Yeah. You know, do... I think we could do that probably in three generations. Three? Mm-hmm. I think I would think maybe four or five. Guess it would depend on what our starting point was and kind yeah. of what the endpoint goal was. I think the challenge because it depends that... on how 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 far to the top you are already on your like, you know, right. I would consider our use are already pushing the weight limit of what right. they are and so putting 20 pounds on them would be a lot harder than taking 20 pounds off and i think i think the way we manage our use we're probably we could we could put another 10 pounds on with more feed inputs earlier in life if we crop fed our our ewe lambs i think we'd have a different set of use yeah um, is that is that hurt do you think that does that hurt them long term when you kind of creep feed them young I think They're, pushing them, pushing them hurts longevity. Yeah. 
I agree. I think yeah. so too. Yeah. And I, so I no. think there's always those trade-offs, right? Yeah. I mean, I, you see that in the Ram stocks a lot. I mean, they're almost all crip fed cause they just, they look better and they're shinier yeah. when they're yep. still, but I do, I do think it does potentially hurt longevity. I do too. But that's anecdotal and not for sure. Well, I think the other piece of it in our system is that they, they kind of got to learn to eat just about everything. And if you're carrying the feed to them, they don't have that opportunity. Yeah. They don't really learn those grasses. Yeah. 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 We were actually, I mean, we were, it's totally unrelated, but related. We, we, um, we weaned our first set of bummer lambs, uh, last week and, Mm -hmm. um, we started the weaning process and we were bringing them off of milk. And then that last week, the last week uh, we were feeding them alfalfa hay in a feeder. And I go out there and look at them just to make sure that we're all set to cut the milk in a couple of days. And I noticed all the lambs, they'd go from the feeder to the milk buckets and then <laughs> to the feeder and then to the milk buckets. And they had this whole field full of grass. So uh, I told them we got to pull the feeder and throw the hay on the ground and keep putting on the grassy areas and spread them out and teach them to walk. Right. But they're very habitual animals. And, and so, yeah, you know, you just like you're saying, you, you get them on creep feed, it's hard to get them off. And that's almost as important as anything is having a good weaning program. It was off of the U or off of, off of creep feed. Yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Right. It was interesting getting these lambs that we fed this year to go on feed because they'd never, they'd never seen any kind of grain in their lifetime. And so kind of had to start slow and just let them pick at it and realize it was something worth eating. Yep. Um, you know, probably took us, I bet it took a, a good week to get them on feed. And then we had to ramp up a little bit from there. Yeah. Our rule is five to 10 days before okay. you start pushing feed. Cause it takes them that long to start kind of finding it and get comfortable with it. And then the other rule is make sure every hour of every day, the best meal of their life is sitting in that feed bunk. <laughs> so that way, the minute they decide to take it, it's good to go. You know, you, they got good feedback. They got, yeah. Cause good one of the worst loop. things that happens is when they go and take a bite and it's something's wrong and they'll, they just won't go back. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's, it's interesting how powerful that feedback system is. Well, I think you got to go pick up kids, right? I do. I do indeed. I, I wish I could keep talking cause this is a fun subject and, and hopefully we can pick this up at convention here next month. I suspect we'll come back to it and um, looking yeah. forward to a remote remote recording at the ASI convention. Yeah. Any listeners out there want to corner us and talk to us about this issue or have kind of experimented, I'd love to get their thoughts because I think this is something we're going to deal with for the next 10 years. You know, how do you, how do you flow between these markets that are yeah. developing and changing? So Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I will put just one more plug in. I'm going to the, the range management conference in February and we're having to remind all of our range friends that sheep are livestock too. Yes. So do that. We've got this, this. We're the first domesticated survey. animal. Exactly. First. I want to hear from, from sheep producers all over the world about where sheep fit in the modern world. So if you're, if you want to participate in that survey, um, Shoot me God, that's, that's, that's to me as much as anybody. I still haven't filled my, <laughs> well, I wasn't going to, wasn't going to point that out. <laughs> it, it's my, I, you can point it out. I failed you, Dan. I promised you I'd do it. Just like I promised you, if we got eight inches of rain that I'd come and drink that bottle of whiskey for you, it's still sitting on the shelf. So 
Oh, we still make, got time. We don't make time. bets with me because I'll call them, but won't fulfill my. <laughs> <laughs> we still got time. We still yeah. Got time. Yeah. Well, this is Sheep Stuff You Should Know. I'm Dan Macon up here in Placer County in Auburn, where it's going to rain here pretty quick. And we got Ryan Mahoney down at Amy Livestock World Headquarters, um, the Amy One Tower in Rio Vista, which I think means it's two stories. Is that right? Yeah. yeah you got you got one flight of stairs. <laughs> it's like three steps, you know, three steps. Yeah, you're in a tower. Uh, have a great week. You too, Dan. Take care. Great to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. It was awesome. Take care.